Good morning, everyone. As always, it's good to be with you this morning. Of course, I'm an extrovert, so just being in a big group of people is energizing for me. I know that's not the case for everyone. Um, but extrovert or introvert, I think that um, there is something important in life-giving that happens when we get together on a Sunday morning. So I'm really glad to see all of you and to share with you a little bit this morning. So today, as part of our Lenten series on spiritual practices, I want to talk about cultivating a practice of stillness and how I believe that affects our ability to engage more fully and effectively with the world around us. So with that in mind, let's just take a few seconds to center ourselves before I get started. So if you'll close your eyes, take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are with us now. Make us mindful of your presence and open to your movement. Amen. As a kid, how many of you had big dreams about what you were going to do when you grew up? My first ambitions as a young girl were to be a novelist and an archaeologist. I was going to do both, but I tried my hands um, at writing first. I started several stories in my little VeggieTales notebook. <laughs> One was a rewrite of Robin Hood with a female protagonist, and another uh, was inspired after reading a novel about a girl on the Titanic. My idea was to write a story about a blind girl on the Titanic for a whole new perspective. <laughs> I was sure they would both be great novels, but I only managed to write a few pages of each before other kid adventures captured my attention. Later, heading into middle school, I really got into track and field and was convinced that I would go to the Olympics and become the fastest woman in the world like Marion Jones, who was the fastest at the time. As I got older, I realized there were things that I cared about more than running, but I continued to dream. I had a close group of friends in college, and we were all inspired our freshman year by a book called The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. In it, he proposes that following Jesus means radical renunciation of material wealth, solidarity with the poor, advocacy for social justice, and communal living with shared possessions. We did a lot of dumpster diving that year. <laughs> when you're a privileged college kid who hasn't quite registered that things like paying bills and taxes and health insurance are real things, possibilities are limitless when planning for the founding of a utopian community that would change the world with the love of God. But even then, as I started to get involved with volunteer and service opportunities on campus and in my community, I began to feel how hard it can be for dreams to work themselves out in reality. This became even more evident when I started my first job out of college. I worked for a nonprofit that allowed me to spend a lot of time with individuals struggling with homelessness. There, I encountered severe mental illness, stories of trauma and abuse, and social systems that let people down again and again. Around the same time, my own family experienced a lot of difficult loss, and it was all too heavy and exhausting. Is it really possible to change the world? How can I be a help to others when I'm overwhelmed by my own pain and sadness? Does anything I do make a difference anyway? Is the system too big and broken to change? I asked myself these questions, and I continue to ask them at times. And I think I would have given up or just stayed there stuck if other people didn't introduce me to prayer practices that allowed me to experience God. Throughout my journey, or maybe a better word is struggle with different forms of prayer, I think what has been most transformative is the experience of God in stillness. I believe the experience of God in the still place 
will transform us into the people we need to be for action and change in the world. So what is a still place? I'm still figuring that out, but I'll explain more about what I've come to believe it means. First, um, I'd like to look at a story in the Bible that I resonate with very much and that I think gives us with an example. It's one of the stories of Elijah found in the book of 1 Kings and what we call the Old Testament. I think we want, if we want to understand stories in the Bible, it's really important to know the context that they're in, so I'm going to give a lot of background here for a minute, so just bear with me. Elijah was a prophet in ancient Israel, so this story takes place before the Roman Empire and hundreds of years before Jesus. The book of 1 Kings gets its name because it tells the story of all the kings of Israel after King David. Um, and David is the one from the well-known story of uh, David and Goliath, if you're familiar. After David died, Israel had many kings. Some of them were good, but many of them were not so good. A series of poor leaders led to corruption, injustice, and struggles of power. And it reminds me a little bit of the very few episodes I've seen of Game of Thrones. There's a lot of violence, some of it pretty gory. There are a lot of stories of betrayal and rebellion as different people fight for the throne. And today's story takes place during the reign of King Ahab, whom the Bible describes saying that he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. This included leading the nation of Israel away from following God and to worshiping Baal instead. Baal was a god who reflected the culture of the time. It was believed that Baal became the supreme god by fighting and defeating other gods, and that the people needed to appease him through sacrifice in order for him to bring rain and make their crops grow so that they could survive. You can imagine that worshiping a violent, demanding god did not bring love and peace to the community of Israel. So, God sends prophets, like Elijah, to remind Israel of what he is like and to bring them back to him. In the story right before the one that I'm going to read today, Elijah gathers the people of Israel for an epic demonstration to prove that God is the one who is alive and truly provides. He does this by building an altar of wood and inviting the prophets of Baal to do the same. And then he tells them, call on the name of the Lord, and I will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. If you haven't heard the story, you can probably guess what happens. Baal loses, and the God of Israel wins by sending fire down on Elijah's altar. With such a dramatic display, you would think everyone would be convinced, decide to change their ways, and return to God. Instead, King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, is so furious at the outcome that she tries to kill Elijah. He flees for his life and cries out to God. He says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. Then he takes a nap because sometimes sleep is really all we need, right? <laughs> when he wakes up, God sends an angel to feed him and then tells him to meet him on Mount Sinai. We find Elijah there on the mountain resting in a cave when our story for today starts. And I have the NLT version. I just realized, like, I don't know if that's the same version. So if it's a little different, it's fine. It's the same story, just a different translation. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, 
but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel, Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Reading this story, I find it interesting that God and Elijah have the same exchange twice. God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah explains his distress. Then God tells him to go stand before him on the mountain, and Elijah has this experience of the wind, the earthquake, the fire, and finally God's gentle whisper. After this, the exchange happens again. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's response is word for word the same. Why? Why repeat the conversation over? Why was God's response to Elijah's venting the first time to have him go stand before him? <clears throat> Though he didn't use words, what point was God trying to make with this display? Then afterward, why repeat the whole thing over again? I think it's because Elijah needed a personal experience of God. He needed to be transformed by the revelation of God's character before he could move forward with the conversation. I know what it's like to be so overwhelmed and stressed with the details of what's happening around me, that it clouds my thinking. To me, it seems that God sees this happening in Elijah, so he hits the pause button. It's like God is saying, hold all that for a minute, Elijah. Just stand still for a few moments, and let me remind you of who I am. Let me remind you of what is at the heart of all this work you've been doing. Here we see a small part of what I mean by stillness, or the still place. It's momentarily letting go of thoughts, feelings, events around you, even in their unresolved crisis to-do list state, to be silently present to God. One of the first times I experienced this was an unexpected moment I had my sophomore year of undergrad while swimming in the ocean. God had to sort of sneak up on me with it because seeking out a moment to be silently present to God was not something I knew how to do. That state of letting go, just being and not doing is so difficult for me still. I find safety and activity and identity and accomplishments. I wrongly believe that love is the, the applause I get from succeeding at things. My sophomore year, I had a mentor who was encouraging me to explore prayer as a way to deal with this. She was telling me about how prayer wasn't just saying things to God, but it was actually more about listening. So when I tried it, I would just get mad because how do you listen for God? How do I know God is speaking? But at this particular time, I was struggling, so I kept trying, hoping for answers. I was struggling because I felt like I was failing at the plan I had laid out for my life. And at the same time, I was watching my friends succeed. 
I wondered if God was abandoning me and favoring others. In the spring, I left Iowa, which is where I was, I'm from originally, to study abroad in Spain. And over spring break, I went to the Greek island of Santorini with some friends. One day, we were on the beach by ourselves because our spring break was early in the season, so it was cold and there was nobody, nobody there. My friends decided to take a nap on the beach. But because resting and not doing is hard for me, I generally refuse to nap. So uh, I went off by myself to explore this big pile of boulders that went from the shore out into the water. It was kind of like a natural dock. So I climbed out onto these rocks, and I was sitting on the edge, and I was watching the water just coming and hitting the rocks. <clears throat> and I love to swim. The water was so clear and beautiful, so I, I decided to jump in. I couldn't help myself, even though it was really cold. And I had a pair of goggles on, because I'm really cool. <laughs> And also because I wanted to see down into the water. Uh, I'm from Iowa, so we only have like murky lakes and rivers. So anytime I see clear water, it's kind of irresistible for me. The waves were really calm, so I just started floating on my back. I began to relax. And the beauty of the water, the feeling of the gentle waves, and looking up at the big sky created a feeling of awe. I felt, I felt small, but held and safe, and so in a way, rested. Without realizing it, I stopped ruminating on my inner struggles and instead just soaked it all in, wanting to be absorbed by all that beauty. I don't know how long I floated on the waves, but eventually I decided to flip back over onto my stomach, and when I did, I was shocked. I floated out much farther than I realized, and the rocks that were previously at the bottom were replaced by what I would describe as this field of tall seaweed or seagrass stretching out into the darkness. Looking out into that dark, vast sea, I felt both awe and fear. What if a whale or some type of creature suddenly appeared? <laughs> and I was torn between wanting this to happen because it'd be awesome and praying that it wouldn't happen because it'd be terrifying. Then all of a sudden, a phrase passed through my mind. I am full of surprises. It's hard to explain how I knew it was God speaking. Maybe it was the way the words hit my heart and brought peace. I don't know, I just knew that it was God. And I got out of the water feeling joyful and light. God did not give me step-by-step -step instructions of what to do with my life like he does with Elijah in this story. That's what I wanted and thought that I needed, but actually what I needed was an experience of rest, of what it felt like to be held, an experience of the awe-inspiring vastness of God in comparison to my small mind. And then to learn that he really does speak and I don't have to try to convince him or strive or make him happy for him to do so. I didn't have a plan for my life, but the words, I am full of surprises, felt like a promise. A promise of more, of good that I couldn't see, and that was enough. It was enough for me to know that while I was suddenly more aware of God, he had all the time been aware of and thinking about me. So this experience also taught me that in the still place, we become aware of who God is and how God is present to us. In Elijah's case, his moment of stillness comes after seeing God send down fire on an altar, a very powerful and, I imagine, intimidating thing to watch. I think it was important for Elijah then to experience on the mountain that the Lord was not in the fire. God may be the creator of the elements and have power over them, but he is not forceful or destructive. His character is not like that of a vindictive flame. He is like a gentle whisper that is able to draw Elijah out of the cave. 
He is approachable, safe, and loving. This gentleness and love stand in stark contrast to the violent threats of King Ahab and Elijah's surrounding culture. We, too, need the refreshing reminder sometimes that there is another spirit at work in the world, one of love, that is different from the negative and destructive ones we often experience in the news, like we talked about this morning, in our workplaces, or even in our own families sometimes. Recently, I've been feeling the need more and more for these moments. Six years ago, I left my job at that nonprofit that I was talking about because I felt called to become a midwife. I moved out here to Philadelphia to do Penn's second degree accelerated nursing program. And after I graduated, I took a job as a labor and delivery nurse in the area, and I've been doing that for the past three years. And then this last summer, I went back to school full time to do Penn's midwifery program for the last leg of the journey. I have loved my work as an L&D nurse, and I love midwifery school to a very nerdy extreme. Like I was practically skipping down the sidewalk after clinical one day when I called my mom to tell her I had just done my first pap smear. <laughs> She's like, you're so weird. I can't help it. Uh, but it's also really hard work. And sometimes trying to do that work within our broken healthcare system is really exhausting. In November, I had several really hard shifts at work and some conflict with a coworker, so I was feeling really defeated. Then I went to clinical, which is part of my midwifery training, and I was talking to my preceptor, who's a midwife here in the city, about choosing this profession of midwifery. And she joked, yeah, we definitely didn't choose this for the money. Once upon a time, we thought we could change the world. But she said it like changing the world was something she no longer believed in. That same week, we had a physician come to class to lecture about providing care to individuals living with HIV. He described his career as saying, this is my passion. This is why I advocate for my patients. I fight and I yell, I fight and I yell, and I grow old. Ah, is that the end result? I left that lecture wondering, what am I getting myself into? I housed out for a friend that weekend, and I really wanted to forget the week, numb out, and just binge watch the new season of The Great British Baking Show, which is what I did for part of the weekend. Uh, but I knew, ultimately, that wasn't going to fix anything, so I forced myself at one point into silence in that empty house I had all to myself. And it was uncomfortable, and I cried, and I journaled, because that's what I do. That's my process. And after I got it all out, I sat still, and I said, okay, God, what do you want to say? Although, truthfully, it may have been a little more challenging tone that was more like, okay, God, what do you have to say for yourself leading me into this hard thing? I focused on my breath and sat in quiet. After a while, what came to mind was a line from a Wendell Berry poem. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. The poem is called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And it's about living in a way that is different from the rest of the fast-paced, competitive, and consumer culture of the United States. To combat that pressure, he says, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Work for nothing. Is it worth doing even if I don't see the change? Wendell Berry would say that it is because a small seed planted becomes a sequoia, even if it takes hundreds of years to grow. I think this self-giving, patient life coming from death view that Berry paints is the same example Jesus shows us. I think it's the good news 
the way Jesus invites us to be in the world. But it is so hard to remember. So we need to take moments again and again and again to remind ourselves of what God's spirit is like and how he operates in the world. Finally, I think we need time in the still place to let God connect us to the bigger story. Elijah comes to God saying, I am the only one left. What's the point? I'm all alone and the work is too big. I resonate with that feeling. The questions I asked before, like, is what I'm doing even going to make a difference, seem essentially the same. In this story, God recenters Elijah on the vast, mighty, yet gentle and loving nature of his spirit. And he reminds Elijah in a gentle way that it's not all about him. He may be our protagonist at this moment, but the story is bigger than he is, and there are other characters. From that foundation, God lays out the plan. Go back the way you came. Go back to the thing that you were running from, and this time, connect with Elisha. He's another guy who will share in this work. And not only him, but 7,000 others. God knows and sees the big picture and is able to guide Elijah within it connecting him to the right people at the right time. I've seen this in my own life. God really is full of surprises. If you would have asked that 20-year-old girl floating in the water in Santorini that she was going to move to Philadelphia and become a midwife, she would have looked at you confused and said, what's a midwife? (laughs) The journey of letting go Listening and connecting has led me places I didn't expect, including moving to Philadelphia and pursuing a career that, while challenging, fills me with so much joy and draws out my truest self. And part of getting connected to the bigger picture has also meant being connected with all of you at Mosaic, and I'm so grateful for that. I have no idea what the big plan is for my life or for Mosaic or for the city of Philadelphia, But against all odds, I think God has a good one, and I'm excited to be a part of it. So before I end today, we're going to take some time together to practice what I just preached. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think there's one right way to enter into stillness uh, before God, but one specific prayer practice that has been helpful for me lately is centering prayer. Centering prayer is essentially meditation with the intention to meet with God and surrender to the movement of the Spirit. On the insert in your bulletin under the resources section, there is a link um, to a website that explains more about centering prayer, and it also has videos um, with people who kind of talk about their experience with it that you may find helpful. And if you are like me and love poetry, is Joy Howard in the room? (laughs) Um... I also listed some poems that have been helpful for me in understanding um, the posture of being still. And finally, there is a free app you can download called Centering Prayer. Uh, I find it very helpful because you can set a time forever, however long um, you want to pray, and you can put opening and closing prayers to kind of bookend your time and help you focus. And I'm actually going to use that up today because there's some nice chimes that kind of signal when the prayer time starts and when it ends, so you don't have to be worrying about time. But before we start, I want to say that most of the time when I practice centering prayer or sit in stillness, I don't feel like anything profound has happened. The stories that I shared today are my bigger milestone moments, which have been incredibly important in my life and transformational, 
But just as important, I think, are the daily mundane times of prayer when we just sit or try to pray and we don't think anything is happening, we don't feel connected to God. What I found, though, is that continuing to show up to meet with God over time grows my capacity to listen, to let go, and be present and connect. So I just want to normalize that silent, wordless prayer is hard, unless the time it doesn't feel dramatic or profound, but that over time, it really makes a difference. So let's try it. We're going to practice centering prayer now for about five minutes. And there are four main guidelines to this prayer practice, and these come from the contemplative outreach website that's listed in the bulletin. The first one is choose a sacred word as a symbol of your intention to consent to God's presence and action within. A sacred word can be any word. It doesn't have to be a churchy word. Um, it's just a word that feels meaningful to you and your um, desire to connect with God in that moment. So it could be love. It could be light. It could be open if you just feel like, I want to be more open to God or come as a way to invite the, God's presence. Or maybe it's just help because you feel like you really need help in the moment. Whatever it is, you, whatever comes up in your mind as we sit here, that's your sacred word. That's fine. If words aren't helpful for you, you can just focus on your breath instead, too. So step two, sitting comfortably and with eyes closed, settle briefly, and then silently introduce the sacred word. Three, when you're engaged with your thoughts, return ever so gently to the sacred word. You can practice here a little of that self-compassion Brianna talked about, too. Don't be mean to yourself. Our thoughts wander. That's normal. Just come back to your word or to your breath. At the end of the period of prayer, remain in silence with eyes closed for just a few seconds as you kind of re-enter back into things. So let's try it. Let's begin. Close your eyes. Take a moment now to think of your centering word. You'll hear a chime signaling our start. And just keep your eyes closed. Keep coming back to your word, to your breath, until you hear the chimes a second time. Let's see.
was the charm. I don't know how well you can hear it from here. I tried that, but so that was five minutes. Thanks for doing that with me. Um, that's a practice that you can continue throughout the week to just try and and see what happens, see how it feels. Um, Throughout the season of Lent, we're also going to be focusing on spiritual practices and small groups. So if you're not connected to a small group, I encourage you to try one out and see how it is. Um, I also want to make a special plug for the prayer small group. Um, it's called Exploring Prayer. Bethany and I started it um, a month or so ago. And if prayer specifically is something that you feel like you would like to explore more of, or you have difficulty with, or you're just curious about, it's a, a space for that. It's a space to explore um, what prayer is and what it can look like in your life, and we would love to have you. It's every other Monday night. It's the second and fourth Monday of the month at my house. Um, there's information in the bulletin, and feel free to come and talk to me after if you want to. So, thanks, everyone.